Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, we are in for a treat today. We often explore the journey of an enterprise, the grit, the challenge, the success of building. However, today's episode brings a new dynamic, the growth of an organization and also the new frontier of a new economy. Web 3.0 and the blockchain, beyond the industry hype, Super Bowl ads, the vocal supports and detractors, a system exists, one that can verify a payment, a contract, an ownership. One that provides ownership of the internet to the very people who create the value on the internet. And one with the power to create economies and the future of work. To explore this topic, we are joined by someone I dearly care for and an industry expert, as I, as I see it, Saif Ashouf, founder and managing partner of Lab22C, a full-service consultancy focused on the frontier technologies and future of work located in the emerging Miami Tech ecosystem. Saif, welcome to Capital Class. Adam, uh, it's so great to be here with you, man, and a joy to be in community with you. Haven't seen you in a while. I've been tracking all of the great things that you're doing, but I'm glad that we're getting to hang out and just catch up over a conversation. It's been too long, and doing so on your podcast is the right place to do it. Ah, I appreciate those words. Let's we are in a unique moment, right? Not just for you and me, and I think we'll talk about that, but the we're watching the birth of an industry. And I think, rightly or wrongly, sometimes people expect that industry to be as mature as maybe a financial system or the very internet that we experience now that's over 30 years old. And so I'd love if, if you could, like, take us in, if you had a very high level, like from Web 1.0, to web 3.0. If you could just demystify that, that would be that would be helpful I think for our listeners because these terms are used ubiquitously but I don't know that they're understood that way. Great. Um that's a great question and uh I know that uh, a lot of folks who listen to your podcast are educators and I'm going to put on my educator hat and keep it really really simple. The best way of thinking about the three stages of the uh, maturation of the web would be quite simply Web 1.0, that era, those early days, Tim Berners-Lee and um, Mark Andreessen when they created Netscape, a lot of our interface with the web was we only had the ability to read or see what was the content that was being put on the internet. So that was Web 1.0. You could read. It was very little interaction between the user and the server protocol and the ability to really interact with data. So that was Web 1.0. And that was the early version of a lot of websites that all of us would have been on um, in the early days, GeoCities, uh, the early version of even, say, Yahoo. Um, The next phase of the internet really has been the one that's defined almost the larger part of how many of us have experienced the internet, Web 2.0. And that's really the ability to read and write. Um, so you are both absorbing content and you have the ability to write and engage with that content. Um, and so we think about Facebook. We think about uh, a lot of the web <clears throat> apps that we interact with on our smartphones and um, the ability to trade stocks, all of the different forms of commodities, uh, digital assets that exist uh, playing video games. If you're playing Fortnite, um, your ability in Uh, immersive games like World of Warcraft to be able to acquire swords and shields and all these other digital products. So that's Web 2.0, read and write. Web 3.0 is really defined by a couple of characters. So it's read, write, own, and 
the decentralization of data. So now we enter into a world where not only can I read and write and interact with data in a way that makes sense for me, I can chop it up, I can decentralize that data. So it's no longer dependent upon um, a lot of us who are old school and remember when you're writing uh, scripting protocols, you're really calling data that exists on a database somewhere, right? Uh, now you have the ability to also own and have essentially uh, custodial possession of that digital asset. And that custodial possession is, uh, you're able to verify it because it's then marked across what is called the distributed ledger. So if you were to give me a digital asset, I can, anybody in the world could verify on the blockchain where that, that asset went from uh, Adam to Scythe. Maybe you got that asset originally from Tanya. We could see that she got it. Maybe she was the creator of that digital asset. So. Web 1.0, read. Web 2.0, read and write. Web 3.0, read, write, own, and the decentralization of data. And so I know we're going to talk a little bit about why that's so powerful and what does it actually mean when we say to own. And also the reason why that concept of the decentralization of data is so critical in thinking about this next chapter of the future of the internet. The, the ownership piece is so different. And I would say this as I've, as I've thought about it for the, who creates the value on the internet right now? Is it the marketplace? Let's use Instagram, for example. Is it the marketplace of Instagram that draws people to Instagram? Or is it the content being created on Instagram that people seek to digest? And I think the argument that that many are making is like the content in fact is the value, but currently content creators own little to nothing of whatever they create on the internet. It's a hundred percent right, uh, Adam. And we, we think about it. So if we have a friend or family member, that's a gifted artist and they utilize a platform right now, like say Instagram or if they're uh, a multimedia creator, TikTok. um, and they post that, that piece of artwork that they create on Instagram, all they're going to get rewarded with are likes. <laughs> That's it. Hey. And <laughs> um, which is fine, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong to chase a little bit of clout. But if you think about it, the monetization, now they might have a brand partnership. Maybe uh, there's a local energy drink that's you know a, an ad sponsor. But that's really a limited amount of value. Instagram is really then monetizing the amount of eyeballs that are then seeing this, maybe it's a beautiful piece of digital art, maybe it's a piece of photography, and the actual ownership um, in on the internet of that uh, of that digital asset really doesn't belong to them. It exists somewhere on an Instagram server, you know, outside of their own custodial control. And so when we think about the things that are possible with the decentralized internet and a lot of what the techno blockchain technology represents, all of a sudden, if I create that beautiful digital uh, asset, like a, like a photograph or an image or something like that, I have the ability to then say, maybe with 500 of my biggest fans, I want to enable them to also own a piece of that digital asset. They own it, right? They, it's theirs and it's verifiable. Um, it's not like taking a screenshot of a photo, right? And saying, oh, I own this digital asset. I mean... Anybody can go to the Louvre and take a picture of the Mona Lisa. That's not the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa, she's still hanging on the walls of the Louvre, right? And so when people think about a digital asset, oh, well, I could just take a screenshot of this particular NFT or something like that. Well, yeah, you have a screenshot and it looks very similar, but you have you have no custodial control. You have just as much control as uh, a kid that takes a picture of the Eiffel Tower and shows you a picture of it on their on their smartphone. And they say, I own the Eiffel Tower. No, you don't. You have a picture of the, uh, of the Eiffel Tower. Um, and so all that's possible on the other side of that really begins to democratize the ability for creators. And right now, we look at it in terms of artists, but we think about educators. I mean, an extraordinary physics teacher that she generates uh, awesome content in her lesson plans about how to educate first-time students about physics education. Uh, in a blockchain decentralized internet world uh, where 
she's able to establish that her lesson plans have driven an increase in passage rates by 35% of students and a bunch of other types of uh, sort of important metrics, all of a sudden you're going to find school districts or you're going to find others that are saying, well, that's something very valuable. And uh, that, that educator doesn't have to go through a centralized platform where I'm, I know there are marketplaces for things like that, where she's going to have to pay a 30% or 40% basically tolling fee for taking what's her creative uh, magic and then trying to monetize it to a very willing customer base. And so we begin to see how this read, write, own, and the decentralization of data winds up becoming a really powerful tool in putting a lot more control into the hands of the very stakeholders that are creating a lot of this stuff. And I think that we're, we're in very, very early days about what this can ultimately look like and what it can mean across a range of different industries and verticals. I think you hit a, a point in point, which is early days, right? Like we don't remember the early days of the internet because we were experiencing it like in real time, you know, there was, a, there was a winner and losers in the early days. And I think there's an expectation what you're specifically talking about is NFTs, right? So I, I think a lot of what is an NFT? And I think in the example of the 500 of their closest fans would be owners of a fractional use of an NFT. And what that begins to do for the economy, for that individual artist is that they'll, they'll have some rights of ownership for that. So long in perpetuity. And as that item trades on OpenSea or just private hands, that artist will be able to keep some of that value. And that's a, that's a, just a total game changer. It, it completely revolutionizes all that's possible. And, you know, to, to your comment there, Adam, it, it's much bigger than right now people will look at it and they'll see these very popular uh, NFT projects, whether it's something like... Or the API the, Club. Or the API you can't Club, understand it. Why, right? you, know, or, it sense. You, you know, or something else, you know, um, uh, one of the other sort of flagship NFT projects, and I happen to know the guys who are behind it, they're, they're extraordinary creators. It's called the Doodles. Um, somebody, when you look at the space right now, that's immediately what people think about. But the example of what I gave around the lesson plan that a physics teacher creates or some other product or service or digital asset class, like we have not even begun to scratch the surface around what those types of technologies can ultimately mean. And the ability even for people, and I know that you and I are both passionate about what is the future of work and learning going to look like? What does that mean for, for people to be able to find a way to monetize pieces of their talent to the world around them um, and how that can wind up becoming a liberating element with respect to uh, how it is that they think about what their career path looks like? And for our educator friends that are going to, at a later point in time, listen to this podcast, we realize that a lot of the current traditional framework of higher education is not thinking through this paradigm. I mean, if you are um, in a, you know, in an engineering program or a computer science program, maybe you're learning about the underlying programming technologies, but nobody right now in a freshman experience class is, is really, other than if you have like uh, a really extraordinary professor, thinking through the dynamics about what is this ultimately going to mean for the workforce and the way people are going to be able to really, um, monetize their talents. Uh, it might be somebody is the best resume reviewer on the planet and they figure out a way on blockchain to be able to apply some machine learning to that capability. And then all of a sudden, rather than working at a career services center at a traditional college or university, they've set up shop in their own way, you know, barring some of the elements of the freelancer economy, applying some of the decentralized internet and blockchain technologies to create an entirely new heretofore unimagined business model. And I think that that's really, for those of us that are in this space and spend time, and especially for folks like yourself and myself who you know come out of backgrounds and working in education, that's part of the paradigmatic shift that we're seeing. It isn't the Board Ape Yacht Club and the interesting NFT or the crypto bro that's engaged in what I would call like laser-eyed fanaticism and sort of speculative trading of uh, crypto, uh, crypto assets. But it's actually the builders, the doers, the dreamers that are actually looking at 
the undergirding technology of blockchain and saying uh, there's something that is radically shifting here and there's ability to build something that is immutable and forever and quite frankly has a greater reach than a lot of technologies which are built right now uh, on, on Web2. If we were recording this podcast on Facebook Live, you don't own that di- da- uh, video, that data. You'd have right. to, you could, you could possibly like screen capture that video uh, or make some sort of special request to Meta's uh, video servers, uh, the people who manage those servers, but that's happening on somebody else's platform, right? And so when people think about this migration, well, why would anybody want to do anything like this? It's like, well, I, I would want to be able to have greater control over the digital assets that I create, especially when we consider that all of us have such a bigger digital exhaust now than we ever have had at any other point in human history. I think the point that you're making is also for the case made for patients. Right? Like the dreamers, are, are sh- it should be a concept that listeners and others should really embrace, right? Which is to say, allow these technologies to be played with, allow these technologies to be almost experimented with. And I'll, I'll speak for our own organization. Of the, let's say, Web3, crypto, NFT, right? Let's just use those kind of three current pillars, right? I know there's many, many sub-pillars there, but if you, broad strokes. For me, Web3 made complete sense. Like, I, I, like, I heard a podcast about it. Uh, shout out Kevin Jenkins for sending me that. And I just couldn't believe it. Like, I, it had been happening behind my back almost. And so, I, I, almost with anxiety, I drove to the store, bought an Oculus, came home, and for 30 straight days, tried it. Brought my team on. We set up a working group. And we started taking work meetings in the metaverse. And the beginning was terrible. Why? The Oculus is off-putting. It's disorienting to be without the frameworks of the current world you're in, right? The Oculus doesn't have great pass-through yet, so you have to kind of lift your mask up and down, and that's going to change. But over time, it became a more and more and more valuable way, but not the first time. And I would say the same is true for crypto. And, and I don't, the current, the company does not use a crypto wallet. We do not accept payment on crypto at this moment, but we're having a growing number of inquiries from international clients. Right now, I have to either engage in Forex or deal with the traditional check and wiring system, which is how we deal with it at this moment. But in a future world, to your point about distributed ledger, and if you're not being, you know, kind of highly speculative, you could in fact just take portions of or entire coins that have a tieback to a current U.S. currency that you could use, you know, on more as readily basis in the today's economy. But I think for our entrepreneurs out there, there should be some expectation of. Give yourself the time to play in that space and also expect some of the growing pains that that almost are inherent but are required for the learning and the use of that tool. That's that's exactly it. And, you know, a recognition that um, getting a sense of context about where we are with respect to adoption rates against the backdrop of history. So the utilization rates and uh, blockchain technologies, like the, the amount of people who are actually on platform, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, right now sort of closely resembles what internet adoption and utilization rates were like in 1997. Wow. So if you were to consider um, in 1998, were you late to the party with respect to the internet? And so for a lot of people, like when you think about like the overall global market of people that are connected uh, to the internet versus what percentage of those people are actually actively engaged in the, the uh, 
uh, sort of word salad of technologies in this space, Web3, blockchain, crypto, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, we're, at, we're essentially in 1997. And so it means that a lot of the products, a lot of the offerings, there's more than enough room for discovery, for learning. Um, obviously, I always tell everybody, you have to do your own research. And, um, you know, the, the, the lawyer in me also is cautions people to think through, um, what about this technology is enduring? What are those pieces of technology that you are leveraging in a responsible way? Not doing things that are cavalier or cowboy-like. Um, but also lend, looking at it through the lens of this is still very early. And yes, there are some deep subject matter experts that are out there. Generally, these are people who are scholars in this area and it's been a long, long time. But it means for many of us, it's an opportunity to level up our skill sets. Uh, uh, I know as educators, all of us embrace the, uh, the teachings and the research of Carol Dweck around growth mindsets, right? Um, you know, how are we evolving our understanding of the changing world and frontier technologies to meet the demands of the learners that we're supporting? And if the answer is we're static, then we've decided, we, we've been resolute about our desire to really want to be irrelevant. Or if we've realized and recognized that they, we have to be more dynamic in our pursuit of knowledge in this technology and other frontier technologies, then we know that we are going to survive this disruptive leap that uh, our world is undergoing. Um, and it doesn't mean to say we're going to become a, like a deep, deep subject matter expert and write a doctoral dissertation on the topic, but it definitely means that it's incumbent upon us, uh, especially if we do embrace the notion of being a lifelong learner, that this is yet again another horizon uh, within which and another domain within which that we would be well, uh, we'd be well advised to invest our time and energy and, and mental bandwidth in learning about and as well as creating learning circles and sort of embracing our curiosity, uh, because this is a, a fundamentally a paradigmatic shift that the other side of where, where we go from here is read, write, own, uh, decentralized means that each one of us can play a role as a critical node in this global network of uh, the decentralized web. Completely agree. And, and I would only follow on to that to say, that some of maybe the struggles of the word salad, beautifully said, is that we're applying our existing world models to something that is emergent, right? So like I'll throw out some examples. So as I mentioned, I'm a big believer in the metaverse, but could there be multiple metaverses? We don't know, right? So I meet people, uh, I'm a member of entrepreneurs organization, EO, big believer in them. And I meet people that are like, yeah, I'm a metaverse realtor. Okay. Could they be totally right in the future? Maybe, right? Could there be a world where like there is a singular metaverse and therefore owning real estate in a metaverse could be valuable? Possibly. Could there be multiple metaverses, right? The current metaverse is owned by Meta, AKA Facebook. Could Google have their own? It's infinite. Could there be multiple worlds? And so when you apply the that kind of like existing financial model of either be it crypto, right? Hey, we're going to buy all these. We're going to create a portfolio. We're going to hedge and short. And they weren't built for that. They were built to be tools to be utilized for different purposes. And I think, and I think that some of the struggles that are perceived in the marketplace, whether they're real, is that our current worldview of how things work doesn't fit this new model, but it's not supposed to. That could be a contrarian position, but it's mine. No, I mean, and I, I think uh, uh, I also encourage everyone uh, to really spend the time doing the homework around some of the origin points of the technology. I mean, you can't really get fully ensconced, particularly into blockchain and Web3, without going back to essentially almost like the Magna Carta, which Satoshi. is Satoshi's white paper. Yeah. And it's um, short, by the way. It's not it's very, very short. It's not it's a thousand very, pages. No, it's not. It's very, very short. And, um, you know, I would say 
you know, Satoshi has this line in the white paper, which um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's powerful, but uh, it, it's really with respect to people who are, you know, skeptics and just don't, are not embracing the idea of something that is really driven by sort of the rules of math, right? And he says, if you don't believe me or don't get it, I don't have time to try to convince you. Sorry. <laughs> and I must what have I love through that, that sentence. I don't remember know, what, that. What, what what I like about that and what I really love about it is you know, both my kids are I've got teenagers and they're both in um, in math. And that's like being um, you know, sitting in a calculus class trying to debate whether you like or you dislike a, a mathematical proof, right? But by nature of a mathematical proof, I mean, you might not like calculus because it's a difficult subject or maybe it's not your forte, but like, there's no way to like choose liking or disliking or not believing in the way as if like a mathematical proof is the fairy, is, is the tooth fairy, right? It's something that is empirically established via grounded mathematical principles. And so what the ultimate applications are of these technologies obviously completely open for debate. And I think that where we are at this stage of the journey of the technology is like, let's engage in those debates. But to be a naysayer without doing the homework is to be ill-informed. Um, I'm not a subject matter expert on a lot of different things. So I'm not, I, I feel like I'm not going to jump in and I might be willing to share an opinion, but I realize that somebody who has a greater degree of expertise can easily refute my opinion with facts. Right. And so doesn't mean to say that they're going to change my opinion because it might be my opinion is probably informed because of some subjective outcome. Right. Uh, or input rather. Uh, but so when we're talking about this technology, sometimes people wind up becoming emotionally wed to certain constructs. Exactly. And um, as opposed to being, you know, um, uh, empirically informed. And it's like anything. I think that's just uh, uh, it means that it's incumbent upon us to to really. Uh, better, better understand um, if we want to again be stewards of tomorrow, um, and also if we are for those of us that are listening in, that are educators. I mean, don't we owe it to the to the minds that have entrusted us to be a guide in, the, in their learning journey to better inform ourselves about uh, these constructs and really a broader range of frontier technology constructs, right? To better understand machine learning, to better understand synthetic biology to better understand all of these areas. I mean, what are the ethical ramifications of AI, right? To, yeah. You know, all of these, you know, to think about like the complexities CRISPR. of, you know, CRISPR. We think yeah. about, you know, um, how a better understanding of the shifting uh, global demography is uh, is going to change what the world's going to look like in the second, second half of the 21st century. These are all things that we have to be leaning into um, and that I think are going to wind up becoming more determinative of our world faster than any of us can ever begin to realize it. You know, as uh, my, my family's heritage is originally from India via the Caribbean from Guyana. And so one of the things that, you know, I like to say, uh, and I'll, I'll make sure I say it slowly so I get it right, is that, uh, you know, karma happens slower than we would like and faster than we can expect it. Wow. And so we think about disruptive leaps in technology, it's kind of the same thing. We, 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 we're not tracking something, we're not tracking something, and then boom. You know, one of the things that's driving the exponentiality in space technology is the most important metric there is what is the cost of getting um, tonnage into outer space? So for every, um, every bit of weight, like the price point, the curve is is sliding all the way down. So the people that are, and it's not just SpaceX, but a range of other space entrepreneurs, the lower we, we are able to get the price point, you know, per pound or per ton of getting material from Earth, escape velocity from Earth's gravity and into, uh, into orbit means that there's more things that are possible for humankind in outer space. And that technology right now is moving at an exponential clip as far as the price point. So the cheaper it is to get stuff up into space means that the, the Star Trek tomorrow or whatever else is possible for us uh, winds up getting here faster than we know it. That's moved 
um, sort of at uh, a really, really a dizzying pace. And that's the nature of how disruptive technologies operate. And when we think about blockchain, those are part of that's very much part of the machinations of what's informing um, the rhythm and the cadence with which these disruptive disruptions are going to ultimately happen. I think what's so powerful about the words you're saying is that you also live this out, which is to say, as a lifelong learner, you went to law school. That's right. And I would imagine if we had done this interview at that time, you had different aspirations, whatever they may be. Then you took that experience and a network and a desire to impact a community and, and frankly, an institution and ascended quite rapidly to the leadership levels of a nationally recognized institution. And for many people, that would probably be an apex. I don't know. In, in the best of ways, right? I mean, kudos to you. But I think as a lifelong learner, you decided to push forward, right? You leave a comfortable place to go to a place that's a lot harder. Starting a business is a lot harder. You have children, responsibilities. And, and I think the, the part of the entrepreneurial journey that people don't talk enough about is like, there's doubt. Right? There's loneliness. There's also success and satisfaction. And like that's almost what makes it worth it. I, I'm interested in the moment when and we hear a lot from entrepreneurs that like it was in a car, or oddly enough, for many in a shower. I, I don't when was the moment when you decided like this was there was more, right? And and that's not to say that what you were doing wasn't enough, but that there was something else you needed to do. It's a great question. Um, I think like a lot of people, I don't know if there's a singular moment. Uh, I'll, I'll also just kind of give some perspective that um, at the start of my journey, meaning when I graduated from law school, the first thing that I did 22 years ago was actually create a vendor management software company. So before I actively engaged in the practice of law, a, a much uh, younger version of me 22 years ago actually launched the software company went through the, the, the life cycle of building a team, recruiting, all of those types of things. So that was it, was, it was deep within me. And then I was very fortunate to go on a journey that took me in a lot of different directions, the social impact world, the not-for-profit world, spent a little bit of time, obviously, in local government, the international business domain. But sort of within me, deep, you know, deep, deep within me was this desire to really, at some point, go back to that, uh, that entrepreneurial pace where I wanted to apply everything that I'd learned to solving big problems and doing so in a team-based environment. Um, and institutions are extremely important. I think our civilization moves forward because of the power of institutions to really uh, undergird everything that we're doing, right? So we think about the role that anchor institutions, universities, public hospital systems, K-12 systems, et cetera. Sometimes people who come from pure state entrepreneurship, you know, they can be it's, be, it's easy to be dismissive of the power of those institutions and oftentimes even um, underestimate the degree of energy and effort and talent that the people who make those institutions great um, to just sort of be dismissive of them. I come from that world, so I have high admiration for the teacher that wakes up every single day trying to think about how to deliver something more powerful, establish a deeper connection, touch more minds, engage more learners. Um, and quite frankly, the way they're teaching uh, U.S. history today is going to be different than the way they taught it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Context, subtext, historiography, historical perspectives, all that stuff. I'm using that as an example because you would say, well, history's dead. And you realize, well, no, it's not. I mean, our ability to better understand the events of the past actually enhances as time goes on because of a range of different things. So for me, I really knew that I wanted to get back into this place where I had a greater freedom to be able to dabble, to tinker, to explore, and to create than uh, what is necessarily required of us 
when we're in an institutional role because we have an important fiduciary, we have an important institutional mandate, we have to at sometimes submerge a sense of ourself and what we think is so singularly important in the name of driving larger institutional outcomes, which incidentally, that's how large systems are able to actually get things done because people are willing to channel their creative insights with the recognition that it's a dynamic team environment, but ultimately it's not about a celebration of self. It's about moving and advancing and improving these systems for a larger uh, set of stakeholders. And incidentally, that can be just as challenging a problem set as it is forging out on one's own on an entrepreneurial journey, because you're, you're managing um, in, in, the, in the first instance, I described institutional setting, you are managing through many, many layers of complexity in, uh, in, a, in a multivariable environment versus a scenario where it's blank slate. And I've got here an idea, it's me and my partner, and we've got, you know, we're going to dream big and we're just going to go for it. Um, and yes, we are accountable to our investors and stakeholders, our customers and our employees, but um, it doesn't come with necessarily maybe the public mandate accountability that is required of us if we're if we're trying to drive change in institutional or public public settings, which is why I have such high admiration for those folks. So you take that back. I think the comparison is really valuable, here, right? Like that each of these, your experience in an institutional setting, right, had some actual almost preparation value for you as you went back out. And so you you begin this journey. You have a co you have a co-founder, if I'm correct. My co-founder is actually my wife. So um, it that's you know, a heck it, of a partner. That's it's great. And you know, having uh, having my wife Amira as my co-founder is an absolute joy. Um, we've uh, we've obviously uh, as as life partners been a team for 21 years. And so for us, this is also part of a culmination of a of a dream to be able to do something in, in concert together professionally. And then I've got a, a broader team of folks that have been with me in my professional journey and I've been teammates with them. Karen Lavernia is our senior partner and vice president at Lab22C. She and I have been a team for 15 years. This is our third stop together. We were together at City Air. She was my assistant vice president when I was at FIU. And a, a few months after we launched Lab22C, she uh, very gracefully agreed to join our team as our senior partner, Tanya Alonso, who's our chief of staff. I met Tanya uh, a year out of uh, college. She had served at City or New York and is a Miami native and was, was seeking to come back. And, you know, over a decade ago, joined my team when I led City Year. And now, uh, almost 11 years later, we've been uh, we've been teammates and uh, and colleagues in the journey and, of course, friends, our families. Uh, and so for me, uh, the transformational element and being able to do big, bold things obviously starts with culture and, al- and an alignment of both values and vision. And so for me, I love being in a space where I'm able to do that with people that I admire and respect and that I feel they are pushing me in my, in my growth and my learning in the way that I'm seeking to do the same with them. By the way, my entire team are all women and women of color. And that's not out of some sort of social engineering uh, or, or an experiment to uh, merely have a website that looks uh, a particular way to satisfy the what, what people perceive is important, but rather it's a reflection of the values and the vision that we have together to try to create something that that really adds lasting benefit and value for the stakeholders that we support. That's powerful, and I don't think you know you're saying something that's I think even more important, which is. You went out and sought the best talent. That talent is what you've assembled, not uh, maybe even less of a term like tokenism, right? Like you found the best people to do the job, and and I think that that uh, being empowered in that way, and more more owners talking about that, more leaders talking about that, it's a, it's an important topic. I, I don't want to be merely boxed in by elements of my identity that I'm very proud of, um, but I don't want to be boxed in by the fact I'm an immigrant, I'm a brown guy, I'm a Muslim American, I was, you know, I'm Caribbean American. Those things are obviously key and central to my identity and deep within my identity and, and all the things that I value and cherish. 
But uh, my professional self, I want to be valued via the, uh, what I can offer, the insight, the perspective, the wisdom, the experience that I bring to the table. And for the people around me, uh, I, I also I share that same, uh, that same approach. And I think it really, really matters. I think intentionality also matters. Look, I started my morning today um, speaking uh, with a group that I actually helped to create when I was supporting Mayor Suarez as a senior advisor for innovation and technology. The mayor said to me, I want to create a program that really focuses on closing the, the, the venture gap that women and specifically women of color are not getting access to um, uh, a really uh, in a consequential share of venture dollars. So we went out and we created an entity uh, called the Opportunity Program in support of Mayor Suarez's Venture Miami. And we got philanthropic funding from J.P. Morgan Chase and some other partners. And then we hired just an extraordinary leader, uh, uh, a Haitian-American lawyer by the name of Kanasha Paul, an entrepreneur, to lead the program. I started my morning today speaking with those extraordinary founders who are founders of color, but there are people who are just doing extraordinary, bold, uh, game-changing things. Uh, and I was able to be in community with them this morning, uh, sharing a little bit of insights about um, what uh, things that I'm seeing and, and also learning from them about what challenges they're facing. That's how we get to a better place. And I think that when we embrace um, each other, you know, I, I tell my own kids this, that, that the most powerful thing that we can do um, to build relationships is to affirm the, the, the dignity of the people around us and see them for their humanity. Dave, you're leading much more than just a direction around crypto and and Web three. I mean, this is this is transformational. This is, and I Thanks, and I think the piece that you said there at the end, which is these are incredible people leading incredible businesses that have incredible ideas. That oh, by the way, have this varied background and 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 varied uh, cultural differences, and I think that that's really. That's a that's a dichotomy difference than when we normally have addressed these items, which is it's the first characteristic, right? It's black and brown and entrepreneur. These are entrepreneurs. They're building enterprises. They're doing incredible things. To hear someone else talk about it, it's it's meaningful. And let's, I think that we have to be, yeah, yeah, I think that we have to really, really have a high degree of intentionality about the interactions. I mean, Look, if I if I get up there and I'm on a panel or if I'm going to be speaking at an event a couple of weeks out and I look at the panel and I say it's very monochromatic, you know, I'll ask the organizers or somebody on my team will ask the organizers, like, can we help you kind of curate a range of different perspectives? Because if it's monochromatic, I mean, quite frankly, if I were an, an audience member, then I think it's going to be very flat. Um, I want to mix it up, right? Maybe if it's a panel of just a bunch of accountants. I want to bring a scientist on there. I want to bring a poet on there. Obviously, I want to bring the perspective of people who have different lived experiences. Like That's how we learn and we grow. For educators, that's why we do what we do. That's why we talk about uh, making sure that we are absorbing the best insights and perspectives. That's what classical learning was about. That's what when we think about uh, whether it's the Arab scholars, or we think about the, you know, Aristotle and Socrates and those guys chopping it up or the great scholars of other parts of the world. It was the debate. It was the discourse. It was not about one homogenous form of thought becoming dominant, but it was rather through uh, the forging of the heat and the fire of those competing ideas that we were ultimately able to fuel human progress and I think at this point in the journey of humanity, and especially as Americans, um, that has to be embedded within um, within the within the thrust of our identity and why we're doing what we're doing and seeking out um, a multitude of insights and perspectives and experiences. And that we can debate topics vigorously without transposing that to people. Correct. Correct. Right. That we could we could actively disagree. Over at whatever the item may be, yeah, right. But that at the end, if if we've if we've had any sort of gap, I know we're kind of jump, we've kind of gone a whole different direction here. There's a there's a dynamic where we have turned it almost into sport. Well, in sport, there's a loser. Correct. These are ideas. Correct. There is no, in fact, loser. Correct. There well, are just. 
it's like a matter of like how you want to play the game, Adam. It's like, do we take joy on dunking on, on people around us or do we derive joy from passing the ball and leading the league in assists? And by the way, you don't win by dunking on your teammate. You're right. And if you take the idea of uh, being as you're moving forward and building and creating things and that, um, again, in this multivariable complex environment, we're collaborating with everybody, even somebody that might be our, they might be our business competitor on project A, but on project B, they're our collaborator. So how much mileage do we actually get by dunking on them versus finding avenues to pass them the ball, create value, get a shared win and keep going? That's, you know, and I think that that's a mindset shift. Um, that I, you know, I constantly, and it doesn't mean to say don't remove, this is not about participation trophy type culture. If anything, look, we have to, to be our best selves and show up and be ready to go. But at the same time, especially when we think about the debate of ideas, it's not about being more right. It's about how is it that we're expanding our sense of learning? And, you know, I would say, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I, uh, even though I'm Muslim, I had the opportunity to attend a Jesuit university. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about the Jesuits, like their their openness to creating these spaces for sort of like rabid discourse and debate. And I took a theology class taught by a, a very accomplished Jesuit priest, and I just love the name of the class. The class was called The Problem of God. So, you know, you land at a Jesuit university, you have a priest <laughs> as your professor, and he's like, you know, you're 18 years old and you're like, this priest is like trying to convince me spends the entire semester trying to convince people that God does not exist. Right. And if you think about it, like, obviously that was, a, that was a, a learning tool, a Socratic method, whatever you want to call it, but like, like then prompted you to go deeper in your better understanding. And so, you know, to pivot back to web three, right. A leap from the Jesuit problem of God back to blockchain technology. It's like, are we willing to go through that fierce debate of ideas and sort of, you know, what uh, Alvin Toffler, the future said is you have to, the future is going to come from us, the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Are we willing to do that? When you were starting your business, right? Because I, it's easier to start a business where there's a known market, right? You were starting a business while an economy was essentially starting itself. Did you experience any sort of stigma or Maybe partisanship's the wrong word because crypto ha- has this connotation. I know, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, so I'll you know I'll take a quick second and just even give some insight on uh, the the company that I, I founded and I have the joy of helping lead Lab Twenty Two C. We really focus at uh, we we have the joy of helping to support venture backed frontier technology companies in talent partnerships, engagement, strategy, and brand. We, we, have a, we also do similar work with more traditional corporates, but a lot of our work is with frontier technology companies that are doing game-changing things. And not just in Web3, although we do have a, a strong thesis around Web3. I'm talking about clean tech companies. I'm talking about health tech companies. Companies that are, you know, the, the, we play a lot with people say, what does the 22C mean in Lab 22C? And so... I like to uh, put forth the idea of who are the founders, the funders, and the creators that are solving problems that will drive progress in the second half of the 21st century, that that clip right before we get to the 22nd century. Wow. And so who are incubating? Uh, I work with an EV, I get to support an EV tall company, uh, which is an electric vehicle takeoff and lift, basically human drones that um, essentially is uh, in in the area of, a, it's a flying boat and it's 100% powered, uh, it's an electric vehicle. Um, we do work with a company that's reinventing what remote patient monitoring diagnostics looks like. So if we have an, a family member that's dealing with chronic disease, they don't have to drive 50 miles to go to a hospital, right? Um, and then of course, some of the Web3 companies that are doing things like working on blockchain protocols uh, uh, in, in areas that uh, where the blockchain itself is based on proof of bandwidth, right? So a blockchain uh, L1 ecosystem that's called Helium that most people have never even heard of, right? Um, so um, I feel that we have a great joy in working in that. And so um, I love it because yes, there were, I had some folks that I know that were skeptical and they, they viewed it as very niche, 
um, the approach that we were taking when we launched Lab 22C. But I think that the more that they spend time uh, with with myself or my team, and they look at ultimately the value proposition of what we're trying to do, um, they they have embraced that look the, that these technologies are here to stay. They are going to be definitive of what our world looks like. They might not define tomorrow, but they are going to define the next chapters of our world two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Um, and there's no doubt that it's worth paying attention to. And so I feel great in being at times the translator for some of the founders that are building these technologies that could change the way public educational system operates, the way that public health systems operate, the way that civic tech operates, the way that we think about the financial uh, financial transactions and sort of the global uh, the, the global financial system. I love being able to help translate and support those founders and bringing the vision, the promise of their technology to the real world, not in an abstract academic way, but in a pragmatic way um, that is sort of closing the gap uh, in, in creating value. The energy that you bring to this discussion, it is clear that not only do you care, you believe. And I talk a lot about energy I think a lot about energy and I think from the sense of like, we're all trading it for something. And I, I ask a lot of our guests this, you know, energy is an asset and I'm, I'm always interested in like, as an entrepreneur, as a parent, as a, as a, you know, community leader, like, how do you recharge? It's a great question. I mean, I would say the first and foremost thing is obviously family um, uh, my wife and I, Amira, we have two teenage kids and, um, I'm learning and growing with them and obviously being able to have that time that's, you know, technology free, just in family mode, um, whether it's, you know, playing a, a board game or just hearing about how their day went and, uh, and trying to recharge that obviously matters. Um, I do think that, um, you know, obviously trying to take, uh, as much care to mind, body, and soul. Um, you know, keeping ourselves as active and as healthy as we possibly can be. Um, and then also trying to do things as well to keep our minds as, sh- as sharp as we can be. I think that, you know, obviously the family front is one key thing. Striking a balance is another way to sort of drive forth our energy levels. And then for me, another source of my energy actually comes from community. Um, I love being in community. I love learning from folks. I love being able to grow with folks. And so spending time uh, for, uh, you know, out there, uh, even though I, I might be at a point in the journey where I have colleagues and friends that'll say, well, why did you bother going to that event where it was only sort of more junior folks that are, um, uh, you know, developers or educators or maybe not-for-profit leaders? And, you know, I'll say because I um, still consider myself um, at that point of the journey as a learner. And also I want to be able to absorb um, all the insights and all the awesome things that those individuals are doing, right? I, I think that if I only spend time with people that have accomplished sort of really extraordinary things, then I'm going to be missing out on the people who are seeing what are the more pressing problems in the world. And if I can learn from them, then I can grow from them. And through that growth, um, it's, it winds up becoming another source of energy for me. So those are the ways I would say family, it's balance, and then it's community. I find a lot of successful people strive to kind of stay close to that. I'll say almost the roots of how they, how they found their success, right? There, there's an edge in the early days when you haven't been successful. There's just a sharpness, right? Because there's no other option. Success almost dulls you. And it sounds like from your perspective, your you're making sure that you're staying in touch, not just with the high flyers. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That they're thinking about other dynamics of the world, but at the very, very ground level of the future leaders, right? How's, how is the new market thinking? And I think that's part of what you're doing also to advise your clients and, and frankly, to be maybe picking future investments, I, I would say, and you know, seeing people uh, achieve and reach and maximize their full potential, that's something that gives me a joy. You know, recently I had an instance where a young person that I'd known 
Uh, now he's not, not so young. When he was in law school, needed some mentorship and guidance, was looking for a job um, in the legal field. I was able to connect him with a childhood friend of mine that runs, runs a very successful law practice. And then, so this individual wound up uh, becoming an intern and eventually becoming an attorney at that law practice. And it's done very, very well. So much so that my friend who runs the firm actually said to me that the single best thing I've ever done for him, for his law firm, was actually connecting him to this person that, um, that got hired. So you fast forward a number of years and I met another young person that was a, was a student at Miami Dade College and was looking for a, a, a legal clerkship and didn't really have an avenue to be able to do so. And so I connected him to this other individual that is now a lawyer at this law firm. And as it turned out, they wound up bringing this young person on as a legal clerk and they clerked uh, at the law firm over the last six months. And one of the uh, one, something that really brought a smile to my face is these these folks then sent me a selfie of them at work together, right? And you know, for me, that's that's what's the wellspring of energy, right? I mean, if we can play a part in trying to push the virtuous cycle forward, right? Even if we're in uh, a private sector role, even if our ultimate mandate is uh, value creation, building building profit for our investors, for our clients, for our partners, and all of that. It is a false binary to believe that one cannot engage in that effort of building up our community, bolstering the humanity of others, and also do well by it, right? And it's something that maybe I'm forever grateful for my time in the higher ed space and the social impact space, that I still see the world in that way. And you know, ultimately, it, it also comes down to the idea of the origin story for me. I'm an immigrant kid. When I first came to this country from Guyana, one of the first experiences that I remember was being at the mosque on at Friday prayers. I must have been about four or five years old at one of the oldest mosques in Liberty City, which is one of the historic African-American neighborhoods in Miami. And after the services were over, all the little kids ran out of the mosque into the uh, into the area in front of the in front of the, the building. And they were all surrounding this guy that to me looked like Superman. And, uh, I, you know, I later learned and I went over and I this individual picked me up, put me on their shoulders. And, you know, of course my dad is like, you know, uh, dazed at sort of how awesome this is that it was Muhammad Ali. And um, so having the opportunity to interact and sort of absorb that energy from Ali as a young immigrant kid in a space where with my background, uh, the America that I knew were cab drivers and people that were owned convenience stores and all the things that are sort of culturally lampooned, right? And then seeing somebody that I shared a faith connection with and then learning as my journey went on, uh, all the things that uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was able to accomplish really as an iconic American and a, and a, and a game changer and sort of boundary breaker. Um, it sort of encouraged me as part of my scrappiness comes from that. And I think about what Ali did uh, as an American and that touch point with me. And I think about the sort of uh, uh, a quote from Ali that I got from my wife many years ago and I actually have a, a, a glove that my board when I let, left City or gifted to me and it's a quote from Ali that is almost uh, has become the motto of my life. And it, it goes something like this, Adam. It says, I hated every minute of training, but I told myself, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. And so for me, that's become my marching orders. I think about that Ali quote. and It gives me a sense of inspiration about the origin of where I came from, my sense of purpose and my why. I know what my why is. And so it gives me the energy, even on those days that we have where, you know, we're feeling high degrees of brokenness to uh, to not quit and suffer through and really know that if I'm able to do it, that I can I, I can drive championship level impact for me and the stakeholders that I'm supporting. And I would say without question, a champion you are clearly for your community you. and you. clearly for these emerging technologies and, and frankly, for the future. Look, Saif, this has been an incredible conversation. We get all of our guests out of here with a fast four. All right. So rapid fire as an entrepreneur, it. right? What emerging trends interest you the most? Now I know you may have a lot, but like, give me like, give me your one. The reimagining of work. People talk about the future of work, but I think that we're only at, we're not even on day one to use the Jeff Bezos uh, statement. So I think that that is so much more to come there. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. 
one place in the world that everybody needs to visit, I would say um, Istanbul. That's a first. And on my list, powerful answer. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year, personal. Um, greatest area of growth, uh, I would say continuing to work on um, my, uh, uh, I would say continuing to work on balance. Everybody struggles with balance and I think leaders should be comfortably vulnerable and sharing that nobody has it figured out and balance is uh, is part of the wellspring of how we do what we do. And um, I'm, I'm a learner and I'm absorbing from friends and family and colleagues that have, uh, have insights on that. And favorite podcast we need to be listening to. Oh man. Uh, obviously, uh, your, your podcast is up there. <laughs> my brother. Um, favorite podcast. Um, I am an avid podcast listener and, uh, I would say that, uh, a, a classic for me is pivot with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. I just love the the yin and the yang element, the perspectives that they both bring, the issue topics and the guests that they explore. So Pivot uh, with Kara Swisher, who's an acclaimed journalist, and Scott Galloway, who's a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business is, in my opinion, one of the most informative um, and, and a, pod, a pod that I love listening to. Sometimes I listen to it when I run. I might be running in like another couple of hours. I might actually tune in and listen to the latest episode and run. Saif, this was an incredible story. One that braided, I think, cultural, uh, future, entrepreneurialism, and one that I think our audience will greatly enjoy. And so I want to say thank you for making the time. Thanks, thank man. You for I your appreciate friendship. it. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategus Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategusgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed. <laughs>